Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I, for one, know that they're a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. My good friends, I hope you're doing well today. Thanks so much for stopping by again. Not a typical work day in or out of Philadelphia. Hundreds of people ride the R5 train. And once the R5 gets about 30 miles west of the city, it rolls through a town called Malvern. Now, if you're riding on the R5 and look out the window at Malvern as the train makes its stop at the station, you might think that it's a nice, quiet little place, and it sure enough is. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that the only place in the world that has a few skeletons in the closet is Malvern, because it ain't. God knows there's quite a few places across the Appalachian Mountains that would as soon forget about a few things from the past as any place else in the world might. But for this episode today, we're going to talk about a place that just a hop and a skip and a jump from Malvern train station. So uh, just sit on down there, grab you a cup of coffee or something, and let me tell you about the place called Duffy's Cut. Now, what most of the passengers aboard the R5 train don't know is that just before the engineer hits the brakes to make the stop at Malvern Station, they're passing over a site of a mystery, with Duffy's Cut being the place where it all happened. Now, it all started back in April of 1832 when a ship called the John Stamp left Derry, Ireland, headed for Philadelphia. Aboard the ship were about a hundred Irish immigrants. They left awful poverty and religious persecution in Ireland to come to our country to find themselves an American dream. After a long, hard trip, the John Stamp pulled into Philadelphia on June 23, 1832. It just so happened that summer of 1832 was one of the most hot and humid summers on record. There was a reason that these folks came to America looking for a better life. It's true that the citizens of our country have the most freedom of any country in the world, and that certainly didn't hurt anything, but it just so happened that their move came during the U.S. Industrial Revolution. So once they decided to leave Ireland, they didn't just write down a bunch of names of countries on slips of paper and draw one out of a hat. There were jobs to be had in the U.S., and the Irish were known as hard-working folks with an unrivaled work ethic. It was a perfect match. Well, at least on paper it was anyway. In the 1820s began to change the whole economy of the United States, which created pressure for Pennsylvania to keep up with other states. 
New York and Maryland had just built the Erie Canal and the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, which we discussed in an earlier episode. They had built through the Appalachians, and both were getting all the business. Now, that is, if you could even get your goods to the rail station to ship them to start with, that was one of the problems. Finally, in 1826, Pennsylvania decided to create the main line of public works, which was a canal and railroad system connecting Philadelphia to Pittsburgh. It was one of the greatest industrial projects ever taken on back then, and in charge of a particularly rough stretch of the construction was a fellow named Philip Duffy, who was an Irish contractor. Now, he'd already had contracts with the Philadelphia and Columbia and Westchester railroads for quite some time, which actually would continue on into the 1840s. Now, track mile number 59 was the hardest part of the whole project. It delayed the whole shebang for over a year. It also went over budget by a whopping $7,000, which would be about $215,000 in today's money. Now, the contract called for three phases. First, backfill the valley. That was usually done with fill dirt from another location along the construction. Of course, after you filled in a layer of dirt, you had to compact it, then go back and haul in more dirt, rinse and repeat until it was filled. Second, create a culvert for the stream, which meant put in some huge pipe to carry the water. Back then, it would have been made of some type of brick and mortar. Now, finally, the final step, that is, you'd grub away the existing hillside, and that meant, in short, to clear it off smooth. Today, with modern construction equipment, that could be knocked out pretty well and fairly easy, but back in those days, it was all done by hand, and it was highly time-consuming and extremely dangerous. But all they pretty much used uh, was wheelbarrows, shovels, picks, and axes to do the whole thing. To top that all off, this was still back when human beings were legally used as disposable parts. And we've talked about that before, too. In the Appalachian mines, the companies were more worried about losing a tool or a mule than they were a miner if he got killed. Now, when somebody died or was killed on a job of this magnitude, anyway, they were thrown into a hole that had been pre-dug in anticipation of just such a thing. But once the job site moved along, they'd dig another hole for the same purpose, then go back and fill in the last one without so much as a marker left on it, or little to no record on top of that of how many were buried there, or who they were. This was the same track mile number 59 was known as Duffy's Cut, and it was a setback from hell. So, about the time of Mr. Duffy was in need of men to who would work tirelessly for very little pay, he took a nice stroll down to the Philadelphia docks, and it just happened to be June 23rd, 1832, and it was just so happened he ran into the Irish folks as they got off the John Stamp. He talked 57 of them into coming to work for him over on Duffy's Cut for not much more than a sack of beans. I suppose it wouldn't, wasn't hard for him to pull that off with him being Irish himself. The poor man probably trusted him and couldn't believe that they'd found work right off the ship. He took them all back to the cut and put them up in what was pretty much cardboard boxes, except the cardboard would have been probably stronger than the material they did use back then. He then gave them strict orders not to ever leave the camp. I guess that meant that they were being held there like it or lumped. 
Duffy's new laborers were hated by nearly everybody around them parts. For some reason, one that I couldn't find any justification whatsoever for, there was an anti-Catholic and anti-Irish sentiment all over the country at the time. I guess it was just another form of old-fashioned, if it ain't exactly like us, automatically hated going around. And back then, hate it didn't mean stay away from it because it's bad or you didn't agree with it. It meant that whatever it was that was hated needed to be stomped out and bulldozed over. Yes, I know they didn't have bulldozers back in, but for the purpose of this, they may as well had. The poor men were looked down on as less than human. Nobody wanted them around except Mr. Duffy. They didn't know or understand American customs and what was considered normal in the U.S. and didn't help matters any. And Mr. Duffy didn't care. He was all people knew and they were strong, hard-working folks and that's what he wanted. Problem is that he wanted their work for pretty much nothing. And if that wasn't enough to make Appalachian, my Appalachian tweezer ass run for it. Mr. Duffy had a local folks. They weren't all he had to, the people had to worry about. In 1832, a cholera pandemic had just stepped into Philadelphia like it owned the place. Now, cholera was an, is an intestinal disease that causes uncontrollable vomiting and diarrhea. The cause and cure of cholera was a complete mystery to even the best doctors in the Philadelphia College of Physicians which was the nation's leading medical training center at the time. They tried about everything they knew to try, which, in the methods they used back then, probably did more harm than good. Bleeding people is one of the methods I'm talking about. That's pretty much how they killed George Washington when he contracted pneumonia. And I didn't mean sign, signed a contract for pneumonia. I mean he contracted pneumonia. Now, doctors had the opinion that as the blood was replaced with new blood, it would be stronger and more able to fight off illness, which was sure enough proven true to a certain extent. You just couldn't bleed somebody plumb to death and expect anything but death. Of course, the Philadelphia Board of Health did what all good bureaucracies do back then and still today. They came out and made inaccurate announcements about which goods and foods were susceptible to cholera. Now, one of them was liquor. I guess cholera thrives in alcohol, unlike every other disease known to mankind. It's like Stalin said, never let a good tragedy go to waste. You can always use it to control folks. That's just a natural progression of government. It wasn't long before the government outdid itself by having the prison turn out all their nonviolent criminals who were supposedly healthy. And that created complete pandemonium and turmoil in Philadelphia. And I'm not done. To top that off, the rumor mill took off and all the birth of better than news established the irrefutable truth that the Irish brought cholera to Philadelphia. Didn't matter what the truth was, and the truth was that that was completely nuts. Cholera finally showed up for work over on Duffy's, Duffy's Cut about August. Now scared and disgusted by the whole mess that this Duffy fella created and dragged them into, the men realized that they were pretty much trapped. So some of them made a run for it and showed up at local folks' homes begging for help. All they got were doors slammed in their faces. That must have been the Christian thing to do back in. God forbid your church would excommunicate you for helping the, quote, wrong people, end quote. They were all dragged back and packed into the shanty town like sardines in order to keep their 
blame cholera from spreading all over Philadelphia to everybody else. Now, as word got out amongst folks in the town that was already full of panic mode and the Irish crew were sick, the town went completely over the edge. Four nuns from the Sisters of Charity in Philadelphia, who just happened to be nurses too, were sent to help. Then the townsfolk turned on the sisters. They were afraid the sisters were cholera carriers and were fixing to bring it back with them to kill everybody else. The nuns were rushed out to help but couldn't buy a ride back. They were first forced to walk 30 miles back to Philadelphia from Malvern and some of the worst heat ever recorded as a thank you for your services. So, in pure bigot fashion, they'd gladly accept help from folks they hated without one bit of gratitude. But, to be accurate, this type of thing went on all over the country back then, so I'm not pointing the finger at anybody as much as I'm just stating the facts. Folks, you still ain't heard nothing. It can and does get even worse. Stick around, I'll be right back. You're listening to the Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley. Now, of course, under the circumstances, what else would everybody back in the day do but form a vigilante mob to deal with the so-called threat at hand? Now, the group was mostly made up of folks connected to the East Whiteland Horse Company, which was owned by the Pratt family, and who also owned the very mile of track known as Duffy's Cut. In pretty short order, the mob did what mobs do. They spent a couple hours at the local saloon, got a snoop full, and headed out to the cut to take care of business. Business being to prevent the spread of that dadgum Irish cholera by cutting it off at the root. And the root, in their minds, was those poor Irish men that Mr. Duffy done brought into town. Even though they weren't really in town and didn't have squat to do with any epidemic of any kind. In fact, they were just as much victims as anybody else. The Irish crew was surrounded by the wild-eyed bunch determined to set things right. I reckon they figured that they had the cure for cholera right there. They proceeded to violently wipe out every last one of the poor Irish men, mostly by pickaxe blows to the head, and some died by gunshots. The men were then dragged over to the aforementioned pre-dug death pit and thrown into a mass grave, and then everybody went home like you'd just been to church. Nobody ever said another word about it, at least publicly. Mr. Duffy sure as heck didn't want word getting back to Ireland because he wouldn't be able to stroll down to the docks, grab up any more Irish workers, and drag them back to work for him, on the cut or anywhere else, for that matter. That would cause him to lose his railroad contracts. It's kind of hard to undercut other contractors, get jobs, and make profits without slaves. So, as far as anybody was concerned, there never was 57 Irish workers, and if there was, nobody ever knew what happened to them. So, Mr. Duffy just strolled right back down to the docks, grabbed another Irish crew of 59 men this time, and they finished up Duffy's cut without a care in the world. There were murmurs, though, through the years, mostly kept within families. Father might tell a son or a daughter about it, and so on. But... For the most part, it was kept pretty quiet. The Irish crew didn't stay quiet, though. Through the years, there have been, and still are, sightings of apparitions dancing around the site of the mass grave, or where they thought it might be. Most of the time, when you sweep something under the rug, it leaves a lump. Sooner or later, somebody's going to trip over it and figure out what's under there. 
Nearly 180 years after the massacre, it's kind of what happened. In September 2000, William Watson sat in his office with a friend, Tom Connor. Bill, as he was known, just happened to be a history professor at Immaculata University in King Road in Malvern. Mr. Connor pointed out some bright lights at near the facility center, was the place where, where they host all the university events. The lights were shimmery like neon in the shape of three men. They watched the flickering lights for a minute or so, and then they were gone. Bill was stunned and puzzled by what he saw, but as time went on, the whole thing faded to the back of his mind. Until two years later, he went to his brother Frank's house in New Jersey. Reverend Frank Watson was also a historian and who just happened to be a Lutheran minister. When the two brothers got together, they liked to talk about their late grandfather, Joseph F. Tepishian. And as they were growing up, he told them stories about the ghost over on Duffy's Cut. Like many Malvern locals, the brothers just figured that it was another load of folklore coming down the pike. But they loved hearing the stories. Unlike most ghost stories, Grandpa's tales had a uh, air of authenticity to him to them. Uh, Grandpa Trapician had been secretary to Martin Clement, who was the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Back in 1909, Mr. Clement learned uh, the story of the Irish crew and started looking into exactly what really happened. Now, Mr. Clement put quite, quite the file together with conclusive evidence showing that the story might be true. In fact, it was true. Now, Mr. Clement was so adamant about memorializing the men that he constructed a stone wall before his file was even complete. The wall still stands today. Now, he intended on hanging a metal plaque that described the details of what happened on it. Of course, he was turned down by the division engineer. Mr. Clement kept the file until he died back in 1966. The file was then left to Mr. Clement's assistant, who was the Watson, boy, Watson boy's grandfather, and that happened back in 1968. Now, when Grandpa Tepishian passed away, the file was left to Frank by his grandmother in 1977. The Watson brothers, studying the secret file, all while thinking about the Grandpa's old ghost stories, and they started seeing things in a whole new light. Now, according to a witness named Sakis, he saw with his own eyes the ghost of the Irishman who died of cholera a month ago, dancing around the big trench where they were all buried. They looked like they were kind of green and blue fire. The mention of the big trench was what caught the attention of Watson boys, and not to mention the description of what Bill saw to the letter just two years earlier, also being included in it. He called his friend Mr. Connor and told him that he thought he knew what they'd seen. It wasn't long before the Watson brothers put together a team of historians, volunteers, and they started research. According to Reverend Frank, they went plowing through the state and local archives like a mob, and the more they looked, the more they found. It wasn't long before the, a scandal started to tear its way ugly head up and look around. It seemed like the official story kept changing because of discrepancies in the details. For example, on September 8, 1832, local newspaper coverage of cholera at Duffy's Cut said that several cases have occurred lower down the Great Valley among the laborers in the Pennsylvania Railroad. On the worst day in Philadelphia of the cholera epidemic, 
which was August 7th, there was 176 cases with 71 deaths. Now, a 100% death rate for several cases was probably pretty normal. As a matter of fact, it, uh, it was a little less than normal. But a 100% mortality rate for 57 cases in a row was just a, it just stunk to high heaven. It was time to pull the rug up and see what was swept under it by literally digging up the location of the mass grave. And they started in August of 2004. Local folk pretty much wrote the brothers and their team off as a pack of egghead whack-a-doodles. Now, Bill said that people told him that they were chasing ghosts and that they'd never find any bodies buried anywhere. In November of 2005, the team found some evidence. It was a bowl of a clay pipe. That clay pipe turned out to be the oldest example of Irish nationalism found in North America. That told them that they were on the right path. By March of 2009, after five years of digging, the team finally found what they'd been looking for. In the middle of a grove of trees near the R5 rails, they found a tibia, skull fragments, and more than 80 human bones. After 200 years, the team expected to see decomposition, but what they found was the skull had blunt force trauma. Over the next two years, the team unearthed six more skeletons, and on Jul- in July of 2011, they found a seventh set. That time, excavation was done without damaging the remains at all. The autopsies were able to determine signs of blunt force head trauma and three more of, or three or more of the sets of bones. The team thinks that the immigrants escaped the so-called quarantine and were murdered, and then some of the uh, some of them did, and then their bodies were brought back to the shiny town in coffins that were already nailed shut, just to keep a riot from breaking out amongst the poor Irish workers. It's well documented that a local vigilante group named the East Whiteland Horse Company existed in the area, and the evidence indicates that the rest of the Irish crew were victims of vigilantes driven by Irish prejudice and class warfare and fear of cholera. Six of the bodies were ceremoniously laid to rest in the West Laurel Cemetery in March of 2012, where there were over 500 people in attendance, but the search for the other 50 still goes on today. Now, I suppose I'll never stop being amazed by how ruthless people were back in the early days of our country. And to beat it all, a whole lot of it, of it was done because of religion. Folks who thought they had it all figured out by picking their favorite verse out of the Bible and driving it through the wall. I know that I couldn't even think on the level that they thought to, to be normal then. Thank God not many folks think that way anymore. That's where we stand today. They're still looking. Hopefully they'll have some luck. I hope you got something out of our story today. It's another one that needed to be told. If you have, please rate and review the podcast. And don't forget to follow us on the, to be notified of new episodes on whatever you're following us on. Come join us on Facebook group Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast where we talk about ever, everything Appalachian or whatever else you want to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend, and I will see you then.